listening to the Survival in Motion podcast. Learn, adapt, prepare, survive. Hello, everyone. This is author Cal Wilson. Welcome to another episode of the Survival in Motion podcast. On today's podcast, what I'm going to do is... As tempting as it is to get into the issues of the day, like the presidential election recount and the hypocrisy of our political leaders and then all the new shutdown orders that our leaders are not following and the implosion of Fox News, on and on and on. There's a lot of stuff. I could spend days talking about this stuff. But anyway, instead of doing that, I'm going to take a break from all this and just play an audio recording of chapter two of the third in the series of books that I'm working on. If you might remember, book number one was called EMP, The End of the Grid as We Know It. EMP stands for Electromagnetic Pulse. A country after an electromagnetic pulse attack is pretty much a country without electricity. It's a way to instantly shut down a country as far as all electronics, that kind of thing. So that was book one. Book two came out last year. It's called EMP NYC, stands for Electromagnetic Pulse in New York City. And I've had a number of readers say that they like the panoramic, the painting, if you will, of different parts of the United States after a societal collapsing event like what is envisioned in these books. And I've actually had some readers ask me, what about the individuals involved? What about Jim, for example, the protagonist in book one? About halfway through book one, he gets together with Claire just by chance. He kills the killers of Claire's dad. She's about half his age, and they become friends, nothing sexual. Anyway, as book one progresses and Claire joins Jim on his hike back to his survival retreat in Tennessee, at one point, Claire saves Jim's life. And after that, Jim essentially adopts Claire and becomes her kind of father figure. And at the end of book one, when they arrive at Jim's ranch, Jim recounts what happened to his wife, who also welcomes in Claire as a daughter. So that's a little background on the personalities that are set up in book one. In book two, it starts with several other people in New York City trying to survive and not only themselves, but get the city through this societal collapsing event of a series of EMPs. And you think in book two that the characters from book one have nothing going on here, but about two-thirds of the book through, Claire and Jim do make appearances. Claire was motivated to go to New York City to try to save her doctor brother and bring him back to Jim's survival retreat in Tennessee. But the questions I've gotten from readers have centered around the personalities involved, the families involved, the various characters involved. Claire and her brother, it's understood after book one that their father was killed pretty early on and that their mother is in Europe and it's just kind of left there. Claire's mother is in Europe and nothing has developed from that. So book three starts in Europe with Claire's mother. And this starts to explain what Claire and her brother's mother is doing in London and how she's going to try to get back to the United States to be with her family. 
So this is read by the same guy who did the audiobook of EMP NYC, which was book two. And while we were working on that, I said, hey, would you mind reading chapter two of the third book in the series? And I can put that on the podcast and get some feedback and let me know what you think about that. So this is that reader from the audiobook of EMP NYC, except it's chapter two of book three. After the end of this, I will have an announcement of a freebie. So please listen to the end of this podcast. Let me know what you think of this chapter two of the third in the series book. Enjoy. Chapter two, as it happens. Carnaby's Auction House, London, present day. The auctioneer had a few moments of levity between offering paintings for auction. Just curious, he said as he looked at the elevated box of attorneys and agents in the telephone box to his left. Does anyone in the box here represent anyone outside of America? A smartly dressed woman with a slight smile raised her hand. Oh, right, Margot. The man corrected himself. You've got your friend in Dubai. Smiles filled the box as the people there absorbed the auctioneer's cheerfulness. Those Americans, he continued. We send them our Beatles and Elton John, and they return the favor by buying up all of our artwork. Some laughter from people close enough to hear the banter died down when the smile left the auctioneer's face. He turned the microphone at his podium back on and spoke as if he was an actor going back into character. Good afternoon, everyone, the auctioneer welcomed the crowded room. The noise died down. Next up for auction is this wonderful Rothko from 1959, entitled White on Two-Tone Beige. A three-by-four-foot brown and white painting sat on an easel a few feet to his left and its image was shown on large monitors on the side walls of the room. The audience knew that more money had been flowing to mid-century modern paintings like this one, so the tension in the room rose as the noise subsided. We'll start the bidding at four million dollars U.S. The auction was timed to allow bids by phone from the United States, which was several hours behind. Gotta go, honey. Joanne DeSaurus, sitting in the middle of the crowded room, spoke into her cellular phone. I want to get that, Rothko, she said with determination. Love you. Have a great visit with Claire. Give her my love. She hung up her phone and put it into her handbag. Joanne was a wealthy 50-something, whose looks belied her age. She stayed in shape by constantly exercising and traveling to visit her daughter Claire, a college student at UCLA and Michael, her son, a young medical doctor in New York. Joanne was at Carnaby's auction house to spend her husband's money, most of which had been made at the end of the 1990s internet stock boom in the United States. Following a boardroom shakeup, her husband had been forced out of his job and made to vest all of the optionable shares of the company he helped found. In a tantrum, he sold all of his stock and then sold short an additional 5 million shares, hoping to encourage a drop in the company's share price. Instead, over the next several months, stock prices of the entire high-technology sector plunged. 
and he made a second fortune as the shares he borrowed and sold short went from boom to bust. He was able to buy back the shares at a 90% discount. Sometimes selling short can make a lot of money. An SEC examination of the stock trading cleared Joanne and her husband of any wrongdoing, but the SEC referred Joanne to the Central Intelligence Agency for recruitment. The CIA predicted that Joanne would want to preserve her husband's wealth by investing in rare art, and doing so would put her in or around some large-scale money laundering. Investing in rare art is one way wealthy people preserve their wealth. It is also a way for criminals and rogue governments to launder money and conceal ill-gotten money on a grand scale. As she prepared to bid on the painting being auctioned, Joanne was aware of the presence of undercover Interpol and U.S. Treasury Department agents, mixed in the crowd and watching the bidding, taking note of high bidders. Every seat in the room was taken. Flanking the crowd in the center of the room were two slightly elevated boxes filled with attorneys and agents, on phones and ready to place bids on behalf of those they represent. Four million dollars, the auctioneer began. He pointed to a bidder in the telephone box on the side of the room. 4.1, he pointed further into the crowd. 4.2, a flurry of bids made it hard for him to keep up. 4.3, with you, Brooke. He nodded to the agent of the current highest bidder. A bid from the box of people on the phones on the other side of the room resulted in a much higher bid. We have a bid of $5 million U.S. with you, Lewis. Now it's at 5-1. Now 5-2-5-3. Joanne raised her hand. New bidder in the middle, the auctioneer announced. 5-4. A pause of the bidding enabled the auctioneer to announce. The current bid is $5,500,000 U.S. He nodded at Joanne. Bidders in both of the elevated telephone boxes brought competing bids. Up to 5-6 now, 5-7 again with Brooke. The auctioneer looked at the other group of agents on the telephones. Any more bids from the phones? Another bid from a formally dressed man sporting a large mustache several rows in front of Joanne ended the pause. 5-8 with you, sir. New bidder. While the bidding paused again, the auctioneer looked at the telephone box. Uh, Lewis, any more bids from your friend in the Hamptons? Martin, how about your friend in River Oaks? A man on one of the phones nodded and raised his hand, prompting the announcement. Five, nine. Joanne raised her hand again. Six million dollars U.S., the auctioneer announced. Six million dollars is the current bid. The man with the mustache shook his head, not willing to top Joanne's bid. Suddenly, a second flurry of bids from the other box of telephone bidders sent the price up even further. 6-1, now 6-2, 6-3, and there's a 6-4 bid. 6-5, anyone? Joanne held up her hand again, and the auctioneer announced, We've got a bid of 6-7 coming from the center here. He looked at Joanne. Your bid, ma'am. Within seconds, it became apparent that Joanne had entered a bidding war with two agents who represented bidders on the other end of their phones. Six, eight. The high bid was announced, following quickly by Joanne's bid of $6.9 million. $7 million U.S. from the telephones. Your bid, Brooke. Joanne held up her hand again. Seven, one. Seven, two was the answered bid. Seven, three. 
The crowd in the audience sitting around Joanne began to look back and forth between Joanne and an agent in the telephone box as if they were involved in a tennis match. Seven fall, seven five, seven six, seven seven. Joanne now had the highest bid. All at once, the people in the telephone boxes looked at their phones in frustration. Some spoke into or dialed their phones, trying to reestablish their connections. The current bid is $7.7 million U.S. Any more bids? The auctioneer looked around, but his looks were answered by silence. A few of the people in the telephone boxes pulled out their own cellular phones and tried without success to call their clients in the United States. The gentlewoman in the middle here has the high bid of 7-7. Any more bids? I've lost my connection! A man in the telephone box protested, followed by grunts of agreement from others nearby, too busy with their phones to speak out. Seven-seven going once, came the announcement. Joanne smiled as she gazed at the painting at the front of the room. She held back a chuckle as she realized that she was about to spend more money than she had ever known as a child on a painting that, she confessed to herself, was not really that impressive. Still, she realized it was a vehicle she would use to preserve her and her husband's wealth. With any luck, she thought, the copy that would accompany the painting could be hung near her dinner table and prompt some humorous banter at her and her husband's next dinner party. Seven, seven, going twice, came another announcement, answered only by murmurings of frustration by the bidders in the telephone boxes, still trying to reestablish their phone connections. Sold for $7,700,000 American dollars. The auctioneer smacked his podium with a small wooden gavel as applause scattered the room. Joanne smiled as those around her looked at her admiringly. Several people congratulated her. Joanne pulled out her cellular phone to call her husband to announce the victory, but her phone call to the United States was answered with total silence. A second call to her husband produced the same result not even an announcement of all circuits busy right now. Joanne's next call was to her bank in Switzerland, transferring money into the local Carnaby's bank with reference to the painting's number so she could go to Carnaby's in a few days and arrange the painting's delivery. The auctioneer announced the next painting up for auction. Next, we have a nice wall hall entitled... He interrupted himself as he pressed on an earpiece to confirm what he was being told. Hang on. The crowd in the room grew silent and looked at the man behind the podium. I'm sorry, but... The man turned around and looked at the staff behind him, looking for confirmation of the confusing news he had just heard in his earpiece. Stand by! He left the podium to find out what to do. A cacophony of disorganized talking filled the room, then died down as the auctioneer returned to the podium. I'm sorry, but because of the loss of connection we have with our bidders in the United States, we'll have to end today's auction there. The Rothko that just sold for $7.7 million will be our final sale today. Uh, Again, I'm sorry. Please make your way to the exits. Joanne joined the crowd of people heading to the back of the room. After retrieving her overcoat and putting it back on, she departed the elegant auction house and merged with those who had spilled out onto a crowded sidewalk in downtown London. Pedestrians packed the sidewalk and overflowed into the street, eventually making their way in front of nearby shops. Traffic noises of black taxis and red double-decker buses made it difficult to think. 
Joanne crossed the street to catch a ride back to her hotel and saw a group of people crowded in front of an electronics store watching a large screen television in the front window. The group looked fixated on what they were watching. The Yanks have been hit! Joanne overheard one man say to another. Joanne joined the crowd watching the television. The darkness of late afternoon London made the television image more visible to the crowd in front of the window. It was the BBC News, with a sole announcer breathlessly announcing an attack of some kind. A graphic to the left of him showed an outline of a map of the continental United States, with some words scrolling along the bottom of the screen. America goes dark. American president and vice president missing and presumed dead as electronic pulse attack hits the USA. That's not possible, Joanne said out loud as she pulled out her cellular phone and redialed her husband's phone number. I was just talking to him. Her cellular phone answered again with total silence. So there you have it. That was chapter two of the third in the series books. The first book was EMP, The End of the Grid as We Know It. The second book was called EMP NYC. And this is the third in the series of those books, chapter two. Here's my announcement. As you listen to this podcast today, for the next three days, if you go to Amazon, you can download for free the Kindle version of the book EMP NYC. That's the second in the series of books. And obviously, there are no strings attached. This is completely without any obligation on your part. But I would just ask that you consider leaving a review for that book. For some reason, the first book in the series has a whole ton of reviews. The second book in the series has not so many reviews. So I would appreciate more reviews for that book called EMP NYC. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed listening to this second chapter in that third of the series of books there. And this, like I said, goes further in explaining the actions of the various family members of the characters of these books. And I think you'll enjoy it when it comes out. Anyway, I hope you found today's episode of the Survival in Motion podcast informative and entertaining and maybe even a little intriguing regarding the book three when it comes out. I hear the music. That means our time is up. Thank you for joining me. God bless. 